0: listening to the Rick Z show. I'm your host Rick Z and we're coming at you from the clubhouse in beautiful downtown Rhinebeck. I'm thrilled that our guest today is a wonderful musician, a singer, a songwriter, one of the Hudson Valley's favorite sons, known all over this place, known all over the world. I'm talking about Mr. Robbie Dupree. Robbie, welcome to the Rick Z show.
1: Thank you very much, Rick. Pleasure to be here.
0: It's great to have you here. I'm, I'm very happy. we got all kinds of stuff to talk about. I don't even know if we're going to be able to get it all in, but I, I'm going to try. But I, I'm very interested in your influences for a few reasons. I know most people listening to this podcast probably already know that you're from Brooklyn, New York, but I don't know if they know that one of the first types of music that you sang was doo-wop music. You sang this on street corners and down in subways and stuff like that, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I came along at the very end of that period. I was a kid, like 11 or 12, and that a cappella period was sort of ending. And um, there was a group that sang on my corner that were quite professional. And they were really a very early influence. I used to listen to them from my window in my bedroom and hear them singing at night when I was even younger. And by the time I was 11 or 12, I actually wandered down into the crowd and sort of begged my way into singing once in a while. I wasn't very good and I wasn't experienced at all, but they were very kind to me and, and uh, gave me a start that way. And we did that.
0: It's singer's music, isn't it? Doo-wop, uh, would you say? It is, that? and
1: it's, it was kind of like a, a garage band kind of an idea. You know, people sang in basements and train stations, and the, it wasn't really acknowledged across the country. There were some hotbeds of it, Baltimore and Philadelphia and areas of New York. But I don't really think it really had any purchase anywhere else, you know.
0: My dad was a big doo-wop fan. He imparted his love of doo-wop to me. We did a doo-wop show right here on the podcast. It's still one of our most listened to podcasts. There's a lot of doo-wop fans out there. There are. I love doo-wop. I, you know, I grew up listening to it. My dad is a bit older than you, but he was a teenager in the late 50s, and he imparted his love of it to me. And I'm curious what, what groups that you gravitated to are. I always liked the elegance, and and I like the... Uh, the coasters, and I mean, the coasters a little bit later, but I I love the crest. A little more pop, yeah. A little bit more pop. Who did you like? The Moonglows, the Five Satins? Who who did it for you the most?
1: All of them were great, but I really loved um, some of the obscure stuff, like uh, the group called The Crows that had a song called G that I really loved, and Trickle Trickle uh, by the videos, and they were just... um, they were really like almost underground within the underground yeah. you know and i loved them i loved their music i like the big stuff too you know the stuff that became famous like the duprees had a big run with their hits um you belong to me etc so i really liked all of it but i i did gravitate more to the stuff that was recorded earlier and then revived in the Late fifties by Murray the K.
0: Like me, you're a big Marvin Gaye fan. I was happy absolutely to see that. yes. I mean Marvin, he cast a big shadow. That guy. I mean, he influenced so many people. When I listen to Daryl Hall singing, oh, I can only hear Marvin Gaye somehow. Yeah,
1: yeah of course. Uh, and
0: I hear him. I hear the influence in your voice as well.
1: Well, you know, the influences is a very funny question because I've been asked that so many times, and when I leave the interview, I always think about. Sometimes I just give the stock answer to the influences, but when I think back about how I really began and what really made me do it, I think back to the album East West by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Mm. At that time I wasn't really like a hippie kid, you know, and every kind of band that was around then professionally was all very, you know, long hair and bell bottoms and psychedelic and all of that. But when I went to see the Butterfield Band, I looked like them, and I realized that there was a place, you know, that I could fit in somehow, you know, without having to dress up, you know. Mm, and, uh, mm-hmm. So they really were Paul, especially, but they were really a big influence on me and my decision to go into music.
0: Funny how influences work, you know. Marvin Gaye, I read somewhere that, well. First of all, Marvin always had that very muscular tone back in that the heyday of the Motown era. Where, you know wh- where he had his big hits, heard it through the grapevine and stuff like that. From 1970 on, he kind of had a high, almost whispering his vocals type mm-hmm. style. He said that he learned that from listening to Lester Young records because Lester Young could put he. Lester would play very softly a lot of the time but he could put a lot of power in each note and that had a a really big influence on Marvin Gaye. I mean we're all kind of standing on the shoulders of giants as musicians. I mean you can't help it. There there isn't anything perfectly pure and non-derivative anymore. When I hear Billy Joel I hear Ray Charles in there. When I hear Eric Clapton I hear Freddie King. Rod Stewart I hear Sam Cooke. Speaking of Sam Cooke another big fan? Very big fan. How can you not be? Sure. That R&B style is very evident in your singing. Would you say, Sam Cooke, Marvin Gaye, that they were really instrumental in helping to shape you as a kind of an R&B vocalist?
1: You know, that's a it's a hard, hard thing to answer. I mean, the first record that ever made me sit up and think of it as something completely unique and amazing was in 1959, the record, I Only Have Eyes For You came out by the Flamingos. And that record was the record that I, made a standard for in my mind for all of the music. While it wasn't R&B at all, there was a soul that was captured in it. And I think that I gravitated towards that a lot. Mm -hmm. I never considered myself a soul singer or a powerful singer, but I like the idea of having a, a way to sing soft and have a great effect with it. And that's what I think was my strong point.
0: You know, so many different uh, styles that I, I pick up in your music over the years. I mean, you have a pretty sizable body of work, Robbie. I mean, 10, 11 albums. I'm not sure how many you've made, but it, it's it got to be up there somewhere. I detect a little bit of a change, kind of a departure from some of your earlier, m- more pop productions by, sure. the, by the late 80s. What I detect is a little bit of almost a jazz influence or Mm -hmm. or a jazz fusion influence. You know, I don't know if that was a choice of instrumentalists or if that was an arrangement idea or a production idea or if it was even a conscious choice. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, late 80s, I'm thinking like, for example, you had this song, Why, that was off your... Carried Away. Carried Away. Was that a conscious choice to, to make that kind of change? I noticed stuff around that time that was being produced similarly. I think of, you know, even Steely Dan and Anita Baker and Michael McDonald. And, and people like that we're starting to incorporate a little bit of jazz into their music was that a conscious thing
1: well I mean the pop thing came to me success came to me when I was already like 32 years old I've been doing it for quite a long time there's just so much time that you can feel honest about doing pop music at least from my viewpoint and so I felt like I had to um, mature with the music as well, as I was getting older, and that that was a natural place. Some of the people that I really loved as pop artists were not speaking to me like in that way. And so, yeah, there was a conscious effort. I never really said, "Oh, I think I'll write jazz chords, but it just happened, you know, just became the way the music started to change in, in time. And it really started with that Carried Away album. I had been dropped by Elektra, and there were five really lean years where music had completely flipped and turned its back on that kind of music in general. I thought as long as I was going to come back and keep trying to work at it, that I might as well do exactly what I felt, and the companies weren't going to be involved anymore.
0: I'd love to play something off of Carried Away, particularly that song Why, because that's one of my favorites, and it exemplifies what I'm talking about. You mind if we play that? Go ahead. Robbie Dupree with Why.
2: I still I still wonder not do
0: another Woodstock resident on the show not too long ago, Cindy Cashdoller. You've worked with her? Yes, I have. Wonderful musician, fun, down to earth, easy to work with. I asked her about Woodstock because she was coming up kind of around the the heyday of Woodstock. You moved there in 72, something like that. Something like like that, that. yeah, 72. You were there at, at a very fabled time. Is it still that fabled place to some degree or has that kind of receded into legend by this point? What's the main differences nowadays between the Woodstock of today and the one that you moved to in 72?
1: Well, it used to be a place that you came to to have your dream come true. And now it's a place that your dream has had to come true already for you to come there. Mm. And so they're very different periods in time. Like you can't be a, a young artist coming to, to Woodstock anymore and getting a, a place to live for $150 a month, you know? I like to say that uh, the shell is still there, but the peanut's gone. <laughs>
0: well said you had a lot of uh, big charting hits I mean the last correct me if I'm wrong but the last really big charting hit was probably Brooklyn Girl maybe yeah that was back in the early 80s at this point you're Creole are you trying to chart still or is it not about now? those things yeah no you don't try no, to chart at all you, no. you're not looking for that next big
1: hit there, there's, there's no way to look for it no I mean if you think about all of the people let's say that were popular in the 80s None of them get hit records anymore. I mean, they still make records. I mean, the, the great Bonnie Raitt has their own label and puts them out. And, yeah. You know, they still exist, but essentially, the business is for, for young people. That's what you have to accept, you know, is the reality that you're not a leading man anymore. You're a character actor now. You know, it's a very different world. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I was never happier than I've been since I've been an independent artist and not on a label. There's nobody to A&R your music, there's nobody to reject things, you know, it's up to you. you
0: know? You're in charge.
1: I produce the records, I pay for them, I write them, I hire the band, I do it all, and I'm happy with that. Not. It's not a, like it sounds like a control freak. It's not really that, it's just that there's nobody calling me up and saying, why don't you make a record for Sony, you know? So as long as I have something to say, I go about it my own way.
0: So it's liberating to some Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you certainly make a lot of records, though. I mean, it, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't slow you down. No. You make a lot of records. I mean, you, you have got all this diverse work. Uh, I have to ask you about one of your records. One of, your, one of the last ones that you made is Ark of a Romance. Right. Now, this is a cover album. What does a great songwriter like you need to make a cover album for? Uh, is, is that a labor of love?
1: I, yeah, it was, and I didn't need to make it. What happened was, it's really a, a story that I'll try to condense. I was invited to be a part of a, a ten-singer show in New York City for the benefit of a family who was going through some very bad health challenges. They had a little baby, and somebody was arranging the show contacted ten different singers to come and be with one band, people that I never knew. And you could pick from the favorite songs from this family. And I was lucky that I didn't really like many of them, but the one I liked was I Only Have Eyes For You. As I told you before, it was a favorite since I was a teenager. So I made up a very simple arrangement for it and went down and it just clicked with this band. And they were terrific, little quartet. And so we, we recorded it and it got such response from the audience that on the drive home, I thought, I don't want to let that go away. I'm going to call those guys and ask them if they would consider recording that song with me. So I booked a little studio down near Chinatown and got them in, and we cut it. And then I had this, what I thought was a beautiful version. You have to be very careful with a song like that because... It's rarefied, you know? That, st- that version is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do anything like that version. That led me to think about, maybe I should record a few more things with them, songs that I always loved. And I probably would have never had that opportunity if it wasn't for that fundraising benefit that I did and that opportunity to play with those guys in New York.
0: You know, what really surprised me, Robbie, is an album of yours that you made, Robbie Dupree and Espanol, Right. Are you bilingual? I mean, do, do no. you speak Spanish?
1: These are all stories, again, that uh, <laughs> are part of this whole... When we recorded the first album and it became a big hit internationally, I met a, a man named Jose Silva, and he was a, uh, a producer from Chile. He approached me. We were living in the same housing area in, in Venice, California. And he asked if I would like to do Steal Away in Spanish. And I thought, I don't know, And anyway. We talked a bunch about it and decided that not only would we do that, but we would try to get Elektra to pay for the whole album. His wife translated. I did my best to phonetically sing and uh, we remixed it and put it out. And um, I wound up going to South America and doing a few TV shows and all of that. And we started a company called The Latin Connection. And that company, um created the same sort of things for jermaine jackson and the pointer sisters Hmm. what we did he's so shy and let's get serious you know pop r b ish kind of pop hits yeah Uh, the company never really took off we were early on that game now it probably would have been a you know now with the latin market being so integrated it probably would have had more purchase the
0: market um, not speaking Spanish I mean how difficult was it to do an entire album like that and were you satisfied with the results when you were done
1: that's another question um, it was difficult um, but they were very careful with me in trying to do it but it's, it's never going to sound like I know how to speak Spanish mm-hmm. it was good enough and there were maybe one or two tracks that sounded passable but um I don't think it was uh, fully legitimate.
0: As a songwriter myself, I'm always keying into other people's writing styles and trying to pick up little things and, and listen for stuff. And in your writing style, I detect I don't know. I, I'll say a, a bit of nostalgia. You like to look back in your songs, I noticed. There's a handful of songs in particular I can think of where you're, you're kind of looking back either over your life or your career. Either there's a, a longing or, well, a perfect example is you have a song called Lucky. It's one of my favorite songs of yours, actually. You're kind of recounting your, your musical life in Greenwich Village and stuff like that. But at the same time, it's relevant to you now because you're still here. You're still right. around. A lot of your contemporaries are not. That's correct. There's something really prophetic about a song like that. You've got almost like a little bit of a chant in that song. Uh, New World Rising. There's a New World Rising. Obviously, that's a reference to a band you were in back in the Greenwich Village days, right? With Nile Rogers. With Nile Rogers. Yeah. Could you guys even imagine at that time that you would have both gone on to find the type of success that you have?
1: Not at all. Niall was a, a kid who lived in the Bronx who was in the Black Panther Party with his cousin, Tom Murray. And we met on an audition for another band. And I came with three guys that were like street guys from Brooklyn. And here are these two Black Panthers and us. And it was this really strange fusion of people at that time. It was hard for us to find work. Niall was extremely poor. I mean, really like he lived in a house with cardboard in the windows and it was, he had a very tough life. So no, I would have never imagined for any of us that outcome. He was a great rhythm guitar player, but I didn't know we were playing like blues and R and B. So it didn't come out that he would be one of the most famous producers of that period in time. It was like the seventies and the eighties. And even into the nineties, he was still knocking it down you
0: mentioned uh, paul butterfield earlier in the interview and i believe you mentioned him in that song uh, if it wasn't that song it was another one of those nostalgic songs that you had no it was that one back. it was that one yeah well you talked about listening to him down on Bleecker street yeah i mean that's real stuff that that's a very autobiographical song
1: like i said that was when it really all dawned on me that there was a place that i could find it, it's hard to explain to younger people today about what it was like but It was difficult if you were like a straight-looking kid from Brooklyn. It was hard to imagine yourself fitting into the world of music at the time with Cream and Jimi Hendrix and The Beatles and all that. Like, if you didn't have that going on, you felt like maybe there'd be no place, you know. And then by catching the Butterfield Band as many times as I did, and me also having a love for playing harmonica, I saw him and I saw a place, you know, that I could be like that and, and and make a living, maybe, you know. That was my goal, just not to wind up staying in Brooklyn and working in a gas station.
0: Well, that leads me to my next song, or my next bit of nostalgia, is the song Audio Graffiti, right. which is another one of my favorites. I mean, that's a great song.
1: It's really me as an observer of a dialogue that's going all around. Everywhere I go and hear musicians talk, that's the talk. It's not like it used to be, I hate all this stuff, you know, people, everybody's recording in their living room, the studios are closing, you know, the dialogue, you know, Mm -hmm. that's what everybody's saying. Well, I'm not a complainer about that, I just feel like it is what it is, you know. Things have changed, not always for the better, but um, I wanted to document it in a song, simply as a, a narrator of that dialogue. Well,
0: you did it very well. In fact, I love that song. I wanna hear it right now. You mind if we listen to it? No, please. Here on the Rick Z Show, I just ask for a song and it magically appears at the snap of a finger. It's it's modern technology. Let's see if we can do it. This is Robbie Dupree with Audio Graffiti. (laughs) is Yacht Rock? I, I've been hearing this term now for, I, I don't know, a couple of years. I, I've heard it applied to you. I've heard it applied to many other bands. I mean, do you take pop music or rock music and put it on a yacht? What, what's
1: going on here? Well, no, not really. I, I think in order to understand how that came about, there was a video podcast or whatever it was called online that was sort of like a, a comedy skit show that was called Yacht Rock. That's where the name came from.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, two guys, I'm sorry, I don't remember their names, but two guys put this sort of sarcastic look at the opulence and uh, and excess of uh, the late 70s and early 80s music, but that's where that was. But then all of a sudden, and I don't know how it happened, college kids all over the country started adopting this music. I don't know why or how it happened, but they just began making it their own thing. Now, what I knew is they always called those same artists soft rock or easy listening, you know, not, not great names. But the kids didn't want that to be the name of the music. So they called it Yacht Rock.
0: Yacht Rock.
1: And they gave it that. And it just you know means that the joke is everybody was doing blow and sitting on sailboats. And, oh, I see. You know, that was the joke. Okay. But where it's come to now is a whole different thing. And the band called Yacht Rock Review out of Atlanta, Georgia, are now the preeminent band. They're being represented by Live Nation. And they're playing for thousands of people every night. None of them over 30. I do some of these shows. They have guests occasionally. When I tell you this, I mean it. The audience is 30 and under, and they know every word to every song. And you, they're singing it as if it was a record that came out last week. And that goes for Steely Dan to Jackson Doobie, Brown. Doobie Brothers, maybe? Doobies, yeah. everybody in the Toto. You know, they know everything. And it's not just one place. It could be Denver, Atlanta. Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York. It's quite incredible. Uh, at
0: least they're listening to the stuff. Uh, that, that I like.
1: That's what I mean. It's a sociological thing. Yeah. You know, like, why they, are they turned away? For, are they listening to other stuff, too? Or is that all they're listening to? I don't know. Hmm. But they they show up.
0: listening to part one of robbie dupree on the rick z show produced and engineered every week by rusty johnson click subscribe and don't forget to come back next week for part two of robbie dupree there's so much more to come we'll see you then